0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: yeah I, I, I don't want to blow your mind but I'm not always right. Elon Musk sure likes to talk. I
2: mean the thing that really got me and I think it's going to get a lot of other people is that there, there are just so many false storms where you think you think you've got a problem have a handle on the problem and then it nope. Uh, It turns out, uh, you, you just hit a ceiling.
1: The richest man in the world has a lot of things to say on almost any topic, including, it turns out, corporate subsidies, the money politicians and government spend on propping up businesses. Andrew Lawrence is a features writer for The Guardian in the US, and he was all ears recently when Musk unloaded on his corporate colleagues. Well,
3: he actually said that he thought it would be a good thing if the chair was sort of yanked from under these businesses and that they were given a chance to succumb to market forces, to proper market forces and fail. He said it would actually be a good thing. And then he further noted that it has been raining money on fools for too long and that some bankruptcies need to happen.
1: So he actually welcomed as well, didn't he, a global recession saying it might actually be a good thing. What was the reasoning there? Yes.
3: I guess he just feels that the current economy is being propped up by a COVID-aided relief bubble and that we sort of need this depression, recession to set things back to normal so that the badly run businesses can recede and stronger companies can prevail, which is an interesting
1: position for him to take. Interesting indeed. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense and a show about the value of corporate subsidies, whether they benefit society and what are the opportunity costs involved. So Elon Musk is the new scourge of corporate welfare. There's just one small problem with that.
3: He sort of frowns on other businesses taking corporate welfare, but over the decades, he's shown that he's more than happy to take it himself. I think we forget... In Tesla's success as a pioneering electric vehicle maker, just how much of that was made possible through the largesse and the relationships that Elon Musk has with state and local governments in the U.S. who have pumped all kinds of money into the expansion of that company, even as it burned through cash from investors and struggled to turn a profit until The end of last year. So, you know, this was a company that was a favorite of Wall Street short selling investors because they thought that there was no way that it could continue on going at the alarming rate that it was burning through cash. But thanks to government subsidy, Tesla was able to hang on and deliver some great products deliver them consistently enough to finally post a profit. So it is a bit ironic that he would want this to happen because if this had happened to him in year two or three of Tesla or even year seven of Tesla, uh, we would probably be talking about this company as like a good idea that was and not a good idea that is.
1: Here's a quote from Elon Musk on that point. He said, companies that are inherently negative cash flow i.e. value destroyers need to die. But as you just pointed out there, uh, he was one of those companies until very, very recently.
3: <laughs> he he wasn't just one of them. He was the best one of them. I want to say that Bloomberg had a counter on its website to show like how much money Tesla was burning through per minute because it was doing it so much faster than any other company. I mean, it was staggering the amount of money that it took to bring Tesla to it's leading a position in the EV marketplace. And yeah, you know, it, a lot of that, again, comes back to not only the tremendous support it had among investors and the great fan consumers of its product, but because of state and federal subsidies to uh, help even out their losses, but give them tremendous tax breaks towards, you know, building facilities like their factory out in Fremont, like the big factory that they're building out in Texas to hopefully produce the Cybertruck. So, yeah, it's, you know, sort of a do as I say, not as I've done kind of a deal with the pen.
1: But government largesse expended on private corporations isn't simply the result of overwhelming pressure being applied by business leaders and their lobbyists. In many cases, according to Dr Matthew Mitchell from George Mason University, politicians are all too willing to come to the party. He's been researching the recent rise in what he calls targeted economic development subsidies.
4: It's fairly widespread. It's probably tripled in the last two or three decades. Every state in the United States hands out subsidies. And the best estimates is now it's probably somewhere around $90 billion a year. So it's, it's a pretty big industry, unfortunately.
1: And is this a state level issue? Or does this also involve local government and the federal government?
4: Yeah, I think it's all three levels of government, federal, state and local. Increasingly, as countries start to feel that they are being pressured by You know, other countries in terms of their economic development, they feel a need to respond. So in the 1980s, the United States leaders were very worried about the rise of Japan. And so there was a push for industrial policy in the 80s both as economic evidence suggested it wasn't working and as Japan's economic model seemed to show signs of weakness, we kind of abandoned industrial policy for a while. But now there's leaders on both sides of the aisle that are suggesting it might be time to jumpstart industrial policy again.
1: Is it right to see this form of subsidy as an attempt by governments to pick winners?
4: Yeah, I think it's, you know, almost it's there in the definition. What I would say is a target economic development incentive has two important characteristics. One, it is state directed. So the idea is that the government is going to try to use its powers to encourage economic development. And then two, it is discriminatory. So it is a targeted incentive in the sense that it offers a government granted privilege or favor to a particular firm, industry, or location. And that can be in the form of a regulatory privilege, a subsidy, or a tax privilege.
1: In a recent report you compiled on the issue, you focused on the Taiwanese company Foxconn as a case study of subsidy failure. Could I get you to take us through the situation there?
4: This was a relatively large subsidy, about 3.6 billion dollars, offered by the state of Wisconsin for the Taiwanese screen maker to come and build a factory in Wisconsin. And it was a deal that was championed by uh, then President of the United States Donald Trump, as well as the local governor, the Speaker of the House, the Speaker of the local house. Uh, you know, so it was a it was a widely you know touted politicized deal. And over time it really sort of just unraveled as Foxconn kept walking back their promises and walking back what they were going to do. But even under the best of circumstances, I think it's a nice offers a nice illustration of the problems with targeted economic development incentives. Because even, you know, under the original plan, it was quite plausible that Wisconsin actually could have been harming its economy through this subsidy rather than benefiting it. And the reason is that a subsidy, you know, requires resources. And usually that's funded through taxes. And we know that taxes have their own economic harm. So, you know, the subsidy boosters will always look at the benefits that can be created by a subsidy. And there's no doubt that if you hand resources to a particular firm, it benefits. It can hire people that it might not otherwise hire. But in order to fund that, you have to have taxes, and taxes discourage economic activity and you know even if if the state wouldn't have reduced taxes in the absence of the subsidy they could have been offering you know genuine public goods and we know that that too can be a boost to economic growth as companies try to think about you know finding the best place in which to locate so you really have to look at both sides of the ledger what are the benefits to the firm but also account for the costs that the community pays either in higher taxes or reduced public services
1: And a missed opportunity cost as well for perhaps local industry.
4: Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the big problems is, you know, we know that growth is driven primarily by new firms. Sometimes people talk about growth as being driven by small firms. That's not quite true. It's actually new firms. That's where most innovation is. That's where most growth in terms of net job creation. And so, you know, a, a state like Wisconsin, which has one of the highest corporate income taxes in the United States, absent the subsidy, they could have reduced their corporate income tax rate and put it right at the in the middle of the pack among all the other states. And this would have benefited thousands of other you know, local small new firms in Wisconsin that could have been you know, the source of growth.
1: And the process of actually negotiating one of these subsidies, do companies, do they shop around? Do they try and play one authority off against another to try and get you know, the best possible subsidy that they can?
4: There's definitely evidence of this, particularly the more sophisticated companies, the ones that have been around longer and have, uh, you know, been doing this longer. Tesla famously, you know, was building a gigafactory in the United States and played several states off one another. In fact, there's even a story of them. Quote unquote, accidentally double booking a meeting with two state economic development officers at the same time, just to make it clear. It was probably not an accident, but it made it clear to each state that they had competition. So yeah, they do they do play one another off on this, off of each other. And one of the things that's, you know, kind of crazy about this is that the best evidence suggests that in most cases. You know, somewhere between 98 and 75% of the time, firms actually are not swayed by subsidies. They would locate in the place where they locate, even absent the subsidy.
1: Now, this might not seem obvious on the surface of it, but Matthew Mitchell argues that the beneficiaries of corporate welfare also pay a price. Because accepting large handouts from government, he says, makes corporations less competitive.
4: Yeah. So a couple of things here. So one is this important phenomenon. Economists have kind of a weird phrase for it. We call it rent seeking, but you may, you might just think of it as privilege seeking. And the point here is that if a government is handing out favors or particular subsidies to firms then firms will expend scarce resources trying to seek those favors and a lot of that can be wasteful in the sense that they're not actually pleasing customers they're finding new ways to curry favor with politicians by maybe you know whining and dining them or or hiring politically valuable brothers in law or locating in politically important districts in the case of foxconn i'd point out that it escaped nobody's notice that this was in the District of the then Speaker of the House. So, you know, they spend scarce resources trying to curry favor, and that can be, you know, a big distraction. The other thing is that when they are protected from competition, which a subsidy is to some degree, you know, it allows you to foist some of your costs onto taxpayers. Firms can afford then to be less careful about how they spend their resources. This is known as X inefficiency. So it's the idea that protected firms will be less attentive to costs as well as to customers.
1: So if there's mounting evidence that these kind of targeted corporate subsidies don't work, and and that, as you say, they can actually have a negative impact on politics, on society and on industry, why are politicians and government, why are they so keen on them?
4: I think there's a couple of reasons. One is a targeted subsidy offers a politician an opportunity to stand in front of a specific factory, you know, often with a golden shovel in hand and you know, they can dig the first dirt load and take claim for that economic activity. That's an obvious, conspicuous economic activity that everybody can see. And, you know, what's not seen is the fact that. Absent the subsidy, taxes for all firms could be reduced or absent the subsidy, public good, public service provisions could be increased. That sort of thing is just more hidden. So I think that's probably the main reason. You know, and it also, it takes a little bit of walking through the logic of a subsidy. For a lot of people, it just seems kind of intuitive, like, oh yeah, if you subsidize a firm to come here, maybe that'll create new economic growth. The benefits seem obvious, the costs are are more hidden.
1: Now we've been talking about the situation in the United States and I know your research focuses on that but this is an issue that occurs to one degree or another in many western countries doesn't it
4: Yes it absolutely does yeah and in many ways that's almost the normal you know state of nature in politics and you know real growth happens when governments learn not to pick winners and losers but instead to provide an environment conducive to growth for everyone And
1: on the subject of picking winners and losers, it's certainly hard to ignore the level of subsidisation that's been given to the fossil fuel industry over recent decades. It's not a secret that taxpayer money has been propping up the world's heaviest polluters. But the sheer size of the investment might surprise you. Ian Parry is with the Fiscal Affairs Department at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund.
0: At the global level, fossil fuel subsidies amounted to $5.9 trillion in 2020. That's 6.8% of global output or, or global gross domestic product. 8% of those subsidies are explicit subsidies, reflecting a underpricing for the costs of producing or supplying fossil fuels. But 92% of the subsidies an implicit subsidy, reflecting a underpricing for the environmental costs of uh, fossil fuels. For example, the um, global climate change damages caused by carbon emissions and the local air pollution damages.
1: Where does Australia sit in terms of the level of subsidies that are given to fossil fuels?
0: We estimated subsidies for Australia at 2.5% of GDP. So that's substantially less than the global average, which is 6.8% of GDP. In Australia's case, 40% of the subsidy was reflecting underpricing for coal use, 25% reflecting underpricing of gasoline, and 35% reflecting underpricing of diesel fuel.
1: And what's the trend? Are subsidies going up or is the level coming down over time?
0: They've been fairly stable over time, actually. And that's reflecting, there's still an awful long way to go in fully reflecting the environmental costs of fossil fuel use into the prices of those fossil fuels.
1: Which parts of the industry benefit most from subsidies?
0: Well, we broke the uh, subsidy estimate down according to fuel product. So 46% of the subsidy reflects our underpricing of oil. 41% reflects underpricing of uh, coal. And 9% reflects our underpricing for natural gas. We also broke down the subsidy according to sector. So 36% of the subsidy is reflecting underpricing For fuels that are used in the transportation sector, 33% reflects underpricing for fuels that are used in power generation, 20% reflects underpricing for fuels used in industry and 10% reflects underpricing for um, fuels used by households.
1: If fossil fuel prices weren't subsidised, if they did reflect the true costs of production and supply and the impact on the environment, what would the outcome be?
0: We estimate that if fossil fuel prices were fully reformed, so prices reflected both the costs of producing the fuel and all of its environmental costs, then in 2025, global carbon dioxide emissions would be reduced by 36%, which would put us well on track with meeting climate stabilization goals. In addition, this would reduce death from local air pollution, reduce those deaths. By uh, about a million worldwide. And in addition, the reform will be raising substantial amounts of uh, extra revenue, almost four percentage points of GDP and extra revenue. And that's
1: the kicker, isn't it, in a sense, that governments are reluctant to bring down subsidies because they think that it spurs the economy?
0: Well, we think governments are reluctant to uh, reform energy prices, reform fossil fuel subsidies because of burdens this imposes on industries fossil fuel industries, energy-intensive industries, and also the burdens it imposes on households. To move forward with reforming fossil fuel subsidies and carbon pricing, we think that governments should have a uh, very comprehensive strategy. They should use revenues from the reform to boost the economy in an equitable way. For example, lowering taxes on households and businesses, or perhaps funding productive public investments We think that it's important to have a robust assistance for the vulnerable groups, not just the low-income households, but also displaced workers and um, vulnerable regions. We think it's important to have an extensive consultation with stakeholders and firms to get them on board with the reform, and also have an extensive communications program to inform the general public of the reasons for the reform. And there's also a balance to be struck between These reforms, carbon pricing, reforming fossil fuel subsidies, and other measures which aren't as effective, are less efficient, but more acceptable because they uh, don't impose a new tax burden on the average household or firm. So a good example is striking the balance between raising gasoline taxes and um, altering the relative price of dirty vehicles, emissions-intensive vehicles, raising those prices, lowering the price of clean vehicles that shifts people to cleaner vehicles but without a new tax burden on the average household although it's not as effective as raising gasoline taxes because it doesn't encourage people to drive less
1: as you know there is that argument that subsidies keep the price of fuel affordable and that to lift them would disproportionately impact the poor but from what you're saying there that is a possibility but there are ways around it
0: holding down fossil fuel prices below their efficient levels the levels needed to reflect production costs and environmental costs is actually a very inefficient way to help low-income households, because most of the benefits accrue to households that aren't poor, that aren't in the bottom fifth of the um, income distribution. So we would recommend that as countries move forward with reforming fossil fuel prices, scaling up carbon pricing, that they provide robust but very targeted assistance to protect the low-income households.
1: And of course, the very obvious question that I'm sure many of you are thinking is, what would the world look like if all the government money given to the fossil fuel industry was used instead to support renewable energy? How would that change the equation?
0: Well, it would certainly help level the playing field between fossil fuel technologies, which have large environmental costs, and renewable technologies, which do not have these environmental costs. So it would help to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuel investments toward renewables. But there are limits on how quickly we can scale up renewables. For example, we typically need to build high-voltage transmission lines to link up renewable sites with the power grid. We need to manage the intermittency of renewable energy, perhaps through techniques to a smooth electricity demand more evenly across at a time of day, perhaps developing technologies to store electricity, perhaps releasing stored hydroelectric power at times when there's a limited supply from renewable technologies. Look, a final
1: question. What does all of this tell us about that relationship that exists between governments, politicians and the fossil fuel industry?
0: Yeah, I think this gets back to what we were saying earlier. This shows that reforming energy prices, removing energy subsidies, is just very difficult politically because of burdens it imposes on industries and uh, households. And that's why we recommend this comprehensive approach that addresses the burdens on households and industries, addresses concerns about impacts on the low-income households, that uses the revenues from the reform in a productive and equitable way. The Reform should also be done gradually to give households and firms time to adjust. And it should be done in consultation with stakeholders and firms to get them on board and uh, inform the public of the uh, rationale for the reform.
1: And you're listening to Future Tense, and a show about the value of corporate subsidies, the benefits for society and the opportunity costs involved. I'm Anthony Fennell. Trade between nations and continents is essential in the world we've built for ourselves, and reducing tariffs used to be the focus of those pursuing open international commerce. But legal academic and trade expert, Michael Trebilco, says think again. He argues that subsidies, not tariffs, are the real problem we face today.
2: Well, over the post-war years, since the inception of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in 1947, over nine negotiating rounds, tariffs have, at least until recently, been reduced to very low levels from very high levels in the immediate post-war period. So with border measures like tariffs and quotas dramatically reduced, there's a temptation for governments to engage in other kinds of measures that may advantage their uh, domestic industries. Subsidies present this challenge writ large, that is some subsidies adopted purely to advantage a country in its international trading relations. Other subsidies are perfectly legitimate policies to promote non-trade-related social and economic purposes. So, trying to distinguish one class of subsidy from the other is the big challenge. Despite the fact that members of the World Trade Organization in 1993 agreed on a new subsidies and countervailing measures agreement to which all members were committed, in fact, since that time, there have been a number of high profile subsidies disputes, more so than most other areas of trade law They're involving airplane subsidies, agricultural subsidies of one kind or another lumber subsidies and the like.
1: And disputes over subsidies are set to increase in the future, according to Professor Trebilco, as both China and the United States escalate their economic rivalry. If that's the case, what does that say about the worth of existing trade agreements and trade regulation authorities like the
2: WTO? Well, taking the WTO, the World Trade Organisation, first, the multilateral system with 164 member countries, The uh, prospects there are not encouraging. First, the political organs of the WTO in recent years have been largely paralyzed in terms of reaching agreements on new rules, partly reflecting the consensus principle that members have adopted, that no new rules or policies can be adopted without the consensus of all members, all 164, consensus meaning no explicit objection by any member country This has proven an almost impossible hurdle for the WTO to surmount in terms of generating new rules to confront or address new situations. Secondly, the dispute settlement process or regime has been largely paralyzed by the refusal of the U.S. and others perhaps, but principally the U.S. government to agree to the appointment of new appellate body members.
1: So what's the possibility of reform or, or some sort of new structure being created over time?
2: Well, I, I think we need to move beyond the multilateral system to look at what's happening in terms of preferential original trade agreements where more progress has been made on rules regulating subsidies provided by or received by state-owned enterprises and the like, uh, more detailed rules, then there's some prospect of progress on the regional or uh, preferential trade agreement front. These agreements, of course, are between typically relatively small subsets of member countries. So th- that I think, is a slightly more encouraging scenario, that is the regional trade agreement scenario. I suggest that member countries at large of the WTO to kind of give up a kind of one size fits all subsidy agreement and with you know red light yellow lights green lights red lights meaning totally prohibited subsidies green lights totally permitted and then yellow lights are kind of an ambiguous category in the middle
1: what difficulties are there in clearly establishing whether a subsidy is, is genuinely a barrier to to trade
2: first Just factually or empirically determining whether a particular industry or set of firms is receiving a subsidy is not straightforward. In many cases, firms that appear to be recipients of government subsidies may bear other offsetting burdens, right? Environmental or labor market regulations. Then you have to compare the uh, subsidy to some kind of benchmark, right? So uh, firms are receiving certain benefits from government compared to what? Well, the uh, compared to what question has generally in the recent past been answered by saying, well, what would firms receive in a unsubsidized market? Well, uh, trying to identify a market either within the subsidizing country or in some surrogate third country that receives no benefits at all from government policies is a major challenge. So these are, I think, the problems that confront international legal regimes in trying to regulate subsidies. And these are much more complicated issues than country A and country B trading tariff concessions with each other. You know, we'll cut tariffs on your exports to our market of a certain category by 25 percent. and you'll cut your tariffs on our exports to your market by 25 percent. This is kind of child's play in terms of figuring out whether the two countries have lived up to their commitments.
1: Corporate subsidies and their not always obvious cost on future potential. That was Michael Trebilco from the University of Toronto. We also heard today from Andrew Lawrence at the US Office of the Guardian, Matthew Mitchell at George Mason University and Ian Parry of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. The producer for this edition of Future Tense... Was current Savannavids. I'm Anthony Fennell.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.